This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book and is number five of the theories on the book of Nehemiah. It is our custom at this meeting to read the portion of scripture together. So those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read together Luke chapter 24. This evening, in this study of Nehemiah, we reach the core, the centre, as it were, to which it has been pressing. When you take Ezra and Nehemiah together, you're conscious that there's something in addition to this. The temple itself was to be rebuilt, but there's no temple rebuilt in Nehemiah. But what they did build was a pulpit, and I think we shall see that there is a very great connection First, the pulpit and the opening of the word, and then the temple and the opening of its doors. I want to, first of all, leave Nehemiah for a moment or two, come back to it presently, with one or two thoughts from the New Testament that will bear upon it. We've just now read, and I hope those of you who are listening have taken the opportunity of reading uh, the 24th chapter of Luke. Now, will you notice that the earthly ministry of Christ, according to Luke, begins and ends with opening the Scriptures? Surely that's not mere accident. It's one of those designs which, if you follow the leading of the Spirit, can be very illuminating. So, will you look at the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel? Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Do you see the condescension of our Lord? He could have spoken, anyone could have spoken in that synagogue without reading a book. But he didn't. He commenced his ministry by opening the book. Well now, he goes through his earthly life, he goes down to death, he's raised again from the dead to die no more, the Son of God with power, and now you might say, he will speak without the book. This time, he will speak from his own heart. But in the risen state, the risen Christ, may their hearts burn within them as he opened unto them the Scriptures. He who could have spoken as no man ever could speak, still went to the book and opened the scriptures. And I would draw your attention to to the words that come in Luke 24, verse 44. For there are those who say that while Christ was here as a man before the resurrection, he was limited in his knowledge, so that if he said Moses wrote the five books, he was only telling you what his father and mother had told him, and they didn't know much about it. Will you test that by looking at verse 44 of Luke 24? And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. This is the risen Christ saying, What I'm saying now is what I've said all along. I started my ministry in the synagogue and opened the book and I said, this scripture is fulfilled this day in your ears. 
I now stand here as the risen Christ, and I say, all scripture that was written of me has been fulfilled. I was crucified. I did die. I was buried. And what I now say in risen glory is what I said before. It's not possible for you and for me to take the attitude that we cannot really trust what the Christ said while he was just the man, Jesus. But here he endorses every word that he said about the book. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then there's another feature I would like to turn to while we are looking at these preparatory thoughts from the New Testament. Will you turn to the first of Timothy, chapter 4. The Apostle is writing to his son Timothy at a distance and giving him instruction as to how he's to occupy and how he's to serve in the absence of the Apostle. And in the um, 13th verse of 1 Timothy chapter 4, he tells him what to do during the Apostle's absence. Till I come, give attendance to the reading. There's the article in front of it. Till I come, give attention to the reading. Then comes the exhortation and doctrine. The reading. And not one of us are going to say, what reading? There's only one book in view here. As the second Timothy says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Here it goes on. Give attention to the reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Now, the word give attendance is a word that is also used of a priest at an altar. So I'd like you to get that as you may not quite be prepared to find it yourself. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 13. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 13. He says in verse 12, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Give attendance is a word that could be used of a priest at an altar. It could be used of a person in a pulpit. It could be used of one who preached the word. You see, there is a tendency on a part of some folk by their upbringing to magnify the priest and the altar and the ceremony even today in church service. And sometimes the reading is thrown in as a part of the ceremony, is intoned with a little background of organ music, and you're not conscious you're reading a book at all. So here we've got the insistence. Till I come, give attendance, the very word that is used of a priest officiating at an altar. Till I come, give attendance to the reading. It's no slight thing to be able to stand up before God's people and open the book as your Saviour did, and read what is written as your Saviour did. So, in all our witness here, I trust, that we will never think that it's a mere convention where we must read a portion of Scripture and get that over. That may be the most important part of the service if only our hearts and eyes are anointed and touched to realise what a sacred deposit we have. Well then, <clears throat> let's notice in one Gospel only, the Gospel according to Matthew as a sample, <clears throat> 
I take that as a sample because it happens to be the first one. You can continue as you wish. And notice the Lord's continual appeal to this question of the book and the fact that it is written and his teaching, not ex cathedra as it were, but based upon what God has said. Matthew 12, verse 3. But he said unto them, Have you never read? I won't take the time to read all the passages. I'll only draw your attention. He didn't tell them straight off from his own heart. He said, you never read. He's challenging them. You've got a book and you've never read. He might challenge some of us sometimes, mightn't he? When we're groping about to get answers to this and answers to that. I wonder if he would say to you and to me sometimes, have you never read? There's the deposit of wisdom. There's your guidance for life and for glory yet to come. Let's go on again. The fifth verse. Or have you not read in the law? Again, you see, in the space of two verses. And then turn to the 19th chapter, just by way of showing that he's continuing this method. The 19th chapter and the 4th verse. Well, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read? His answer was to take them right back to what God did at the beginning before we began to argue with regard to subsequent treatment. Or again, in chapter 21, verse 16, And he said unto them, Hearest thou what these say? Jesus said unto them, Yea, have you never read? You see, he could have answered them straight off and told them the truth, but he threw it back on them. Have you never read? And in the 42nd verse, And Jesus said unto them, Did you never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected? Did you never read them? And finally, chapter 22, verse 31. Uh, am I right or wrong? 31. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, well, I think that's enough. I don't want to take too much time, but isn't it a challenge to us that he is the Son of God at the beginning of his ministry, the very first thing he did was to have a book given to him and he opened it and he read it and he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled. And in the last record, the last chapter of the same book, he made their hearts burn within them, not by telling them something that he could have told them, but he made their hearts burn when he opened to them the scriptures. And here he is with all sorts of people listening to him, asking all sorts of questions. And he who could have spoken as no man ever spoke. He kept saying, have you never read? Have you never read? Have you never read? So that's one of the reasons why I think this passage in Nehemiah, when they found the book and opened it, is a critical moment. It was something to which they were pressing. They got the wall built. They were all congregated there. And the thing that was in their midst was not an altar, Another sacrifice, another temple, another priest, but a book. And that's where the thing ends in Nehemiah. Goes on afterwards in Ezra. For a temple to be built and what that book speaks about to be done. But you see the importance that's put upon it. It's got a book all to itself in Nehemiah. The centre of the whole book. The book was found. The book was read. The book was opened. The book was explained. Then I remind you, uh, that we have, without turning to the passage, 
the words in the book of the Revelation. Blessed are they that read and those that hear the book of this, or the words of this prophecy. The reading. Well, now I have to read that because of time. Shall we come back now to the book of Nehemiah itself and see the way in which this figures? The eighth chapter. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street. This is almost like the wording of the day of Pentecost. They were in one accord in one place. In the day of Pentecost, they were not necessarily in the street. I don't know just where they were. They were at Jerusalem. But here they gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded to Israel. So Ezra the scribe has the book. Now whether Ezra brought it with him or whether Nehemiah found it when he went on his midnight tour around and told nobody what he was after is a speculation. But when they were ready for it, the book was there. Well now you'll notice in the 14th verse, And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. This happened to be the seventh month. I think it says in the preceding verse of chapter, the last verse of chapter 7. So the priests and the Levites and the porters and the singers and some of the people and the Nethinims and all Israel dwelt in their cities and when the seventh month came the children of Israel were in their cities and on that seventh month they read in the scriptures and found that God had said something about this seventh month that they should live in booths. And so they collected the palm branches and the other things. They erected it and they commemorated the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, of course, that has an important bearing because that is the seventh month, that is the last month of Israel's festival year. Of course, they had their 12 months as we have. In fact, they beat us because they could have 13 months sometimes in order to bring it back again as their months were always 30 days. They didn't have to say to themselves, you know, April, June and November, which is which. It was always 30 days. So it gradually slipped back and they got one more month thrown in. But so far as the festival year is concerned, the end of the year was the seventh month. It was ushered in by the blowing of trumpets. It was followed by the most solemn feast of, fast of all Israel, the Day of Atonement. And then it was followed by the rejoicing of not being living in walled cities, but being able to live in booths with no one making them afraid. It was just an anticipation of that day which is yet to come. And that very period is called in the uh, book of Exodus uh, the book of Exodus says that three times a year shall they have this particular feast and the third one is the ingathering at the end of the harvest now that very word is the word Sunkeliah and is the very word used by the disciples in Matthew 24 what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end End, the end, the soon to lie, the gathering up, the day of harvest for which all the sowing and all the reaping has been planned. So it was a moment, you see, in the days of Nehemiah and this people that was typical. They'd done their work, the world was finished, and now it was the seventh month, and they were now anticipating the day to which all these things press with their type and shadow. 
But for a moment, we'll go on. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, with sackcloth, and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all the strangers, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father, fathers. And they stood up in their place, and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day. And another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. They've been reading in this book. It doesn't go on to say in this particular passage what they read. But they came across this. And you'll discover that they did it again in the um, 13th chapter. The 13th chapter of this same book. Verse 1. On that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Verse 3, Now it came to pass when they heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. And you remember how it was the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt that caused Israel to sin at the beginning. So there was a big insistence upon once more standing as a separated, called out people all because they found the book, and all because they read it. Well, you'll find there are many other passages. There are a few scattered through chapter 9, which I haven't read. But I would ask you to notice that in verse 7 of chapter 9, it says, Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abraham, and broughtest him forth out of Ur the Chaldees, and gave him the name of Abraham. And it goes on to say, in verse 9, Thou didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heardest their cry by the Red Sea. Don't you see what's happened? They found the book. Because none of them could have recited that from memory. It had been forgotten. These were people who had grown up in a heathen land without the book. And they couldn't even read the language in which it was written. They had to have it interpreted. But they've been giving it an opportunity to speak to them. So now they're going through the history, right the way up, you see, to their own time. But I must leave that chapter 9 to speak for itself if you care to look at it personally afterwards. Now if I get so tangled up with all these notes I've got here, you have to come to my rescue because I, I haven't quite known just what to put in and what to leave out. Now chapter 8 again in Nehemiah. And it came to, and all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. The book of the law of Moses. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding, upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street, that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday. So they had a good session, didn't they? I mean, some of us, we think, oh my, fancy, ten minutes we've got to set aside in our meeting for reading the scriptures. Here they, they, they started, and they went on, you see, till midday. And those that, that could understand the children. And the ears of all the people were attentive. Oh, I suppose that's the reason why I could read a long time. And the ears of all that were attentive, of the people were attentive unto the book of the Lord. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which had been made for the purpose. 
Oh, we're right in the heart of it now, friends. And I suppose you can understand, when this chapel was first opened, the very first meeting we had, when we practically dedicated this place to the service of the Lord in the interests of a rightly divided word, I couldn't help myself, could I? I stood here and I read this passage. And I said, there's nothing for it, we've got to call this the chapel of the opened book. Well, and I trust that as long as time lasts, and there's a roof on top of this place, it'll be worthy of that name. The chapel of the opened book. Of course, some people say, what book? Well, of course, they're ignorant, aren't they? There's only one book that we can bother about in this place, although we've got crowds of them all over the place. There's only one book that is the centre of our witness. In the chapel of the opened book. It's the book that our Saviour opened in the synagogue. It's the book that he opened when he spoke after his resurrection and made their hearts burden at them. It's the only book that matters ultimately and finally. Now we read, the next is this. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, now there's a great number of names and I shall stumble over them and uh, we're not doing them any despite. They won't mind because the day will come when they'll be honoured. So these men stand by him. Their names are repeated, you see. And in verse 5, and Ezra opened the book. Doesn't it seem a solemn moment? He's got it, you see. And they're all standing there. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. That's why it was a, a pulpit of wood and he stood there above the people, not to magnify himself. And so this is not done in a corner. This is opened in the sight of all the people. You can hear the Apostle Paul, can't you, saying, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. So here, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. That's put in brackets. You see, just to say, he wasn't up there just to show himself off. He was up there so they could see that he'd opened the book and he was reading from it. And not only so, he got a whole crowd up in that pulpit. Oh, there's not much room in this one for two or three more. But this was a pulpit big enough to take all the names that are mentioned in verse 7. And but before we get to that, you notice, when he opened it, verse 5, when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now, you're not told anyone said to them, will you stand? I don't know. But you can quite feel, can't you, there was a solemn moment that the whole people as one man, it said, assembled there. And as one man, as this book was opened, they were conscious of the wonder of it. They were conscious of the sacredness of it. But they all stood up. They all stood up. And in the Old Testament, to stand up was to act reverently. Job complains that once, when he was there, Somebody passed by, or he was there, they stood up and honoured him. Now he says, they flout me. They all stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. No priest, no altar, no sacrifice, no temple, but they worshipped. These people at this moment were as near to spiritual worship as we can get. 
Later on, when they got their temple and they got their sacrifices, the Lord had to rebuke them because they said, he said, I'm weary of the incense you're offering. Because they began to degenerate into mere worshippers of the things that they could see and do instead of the fact that God was in their midst and spoke to them through his word. Now in verse 7, there are names given, Jeshua, Barney, and so on. And these, together with the Levites, caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. Perhaps I was wrong when I thought all this crowd were in the pulpit. I was thinking, when I said that, of the custom in the synagogue. I don't know if it's done in this day, but it used to be done. That when the reader stood in the synagogue, he opened the scriptures, which were in Hebrew, and he held in his hand a long pointer with a finger to it, sometimes made of gold, sometimes made of wood. And if you know the picture that's in the vestry, you can see a jeweled one there that I've copied. And he was not allowed to read without using that pointer. And he read a sentence and stopped. And the man looking over his shoulder then translated it so that the people who didn't understand the Hebrew should know. And that went on verse by verse. So we have here the beginnings of that. For Ezra was very much connected with the assembling of the scriptures together, what we call the Old Testament canon, and possibly out of his work arose the great Sanhedrin, the council that was there at the time of Christ at Jerusalem. And again you see the people stood in their place. So, this is the comment. So, they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly. They read in the book of the law of God, distinctly. And gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. Well, that's good information, isn't it? Of course, if a person has got a peppermint in his, oh, sorry, an impediment in his speech, God can with scattering lips be glorified. But if a person can speak, he should most certainly make it possible for somebody to hear what he's saying. And if you ever stand up here in this little pulpit and you're conscious that someone's looking and trying to hear what you say, well, it's a demand that you should meet. So even from the lowest point of view altogether of what we might call elocution. There should be some discipline. If you're going to serve the Lord, you want to give him something that's worthwhile. There's one verse of a hymn that I used to hear some when I first started going to Christian gatherings, and it is, For whom our Lord did die. Well, you could hear them singing away for all the world, one word, Lord he die, L-O-R-D-I-D-I-D-I, it's all. Well, that may be excusable. But one of the secrets for speaking distinctly is to end the word before you start the next one. Well, that means you've got to watch a little bit. (coughs) But on the other hand, there's another meaning to this word distinctly. And it's almost in the word itself. In our English, and that's by accident. Proverbs 23, verse 32. Proverbs what does it say? 23, 32. Proverbs 
last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. You say, what's that got to do with it? Well, that's the word distinctly. <clears throat> that is to say, the word that you speak should have some sting in it. It should have some point about it. It should not be muzzy. Either from the low point of view of sound or from the higher point of view of meaning. It's the word that means a taunting, a taunting proverb in Habakkuk. It's got a point about it. And um, in Proverbs chapter 1, I ought to turn to that at the same time, didn't I? Proverbs chapter 1, when it speaks in the first chapter about a proverb, it says in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 5, a wise man will hear and would increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain other wise counsels. To understand a proverb and its point, that's the word interpretation, to understand a proverb and its point, to understand the words of the wise and their dark sayings, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not need an elocution class. The elocution class is only just a means to an end. So we've got the word distinctly. Well, it also says, they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense. They gave the sense. Now, do you remember that Christ himself, he said to the, he said to his listeners, he said, go and learn what that meaneth. Because some of these people were glibly quoting scripture. He said to them, he said to some of them, you search the scriptures for it, then you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. The meaning, after all, is the essence of a book. Supposing you could read, or supposing you had given to you a sentence, and somebody said to you, do you believe that's true? Well, suppose it was written in Chinese. What would you say? Well, say, well, I'm afraid I don't know. It may be the biggest gibberish. It may be an awful word. Or what is it? Well, it's the first verse of the book of Genesis. Oh, I believe the first verse of the book of Genesis. But if that's written in gold and it doesn't mean anything, I can't believe it. So when we are dealing with this, when we are either teaching or preaching or even reading, let's see to it that the meaning is obvious. So occasionally in reading, it's wise to stop and say, well now, I don't want to interrupt our reading too much. But that particular word now has lost its meaning. It means so and so, you see. And you go on. But unless the word, like the trumpet, gives a certain sound, no one will quite know just what the intention is. So they gave the sense. And then we have this emphasis upon the reading. Now this word, to read, is translated to call, to cry, to invite, to proclaim, to preach, and to publish. Well, the reading has got a good many opportunities then to get a hearing. Shall I say those again? The word read in the Hebrew is to call. Well, the call is to give a sort of an invitation or to arrest somebody to stop them. And to cry is to attract attention. And to invite, of course, is to call. And to proclaim is to make an utterance as though someone has sent you with a message. To preach and to publish is to make known. 
So there we got these things. That these men stood there. They read in the book of the law of God distinctly. They gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And so there are many passages that we could remember. Now this apparently was adopted by the rulers of the Jews and ultimately came out into the targums as they're called, commentaries that were written first of all to explain the book and ultimately overloaded it to such an extent uh, that you don't know where you're going when you read half of it. Well, that's just what human nature does. But at the beginning, it was done wisely. Because, you see, these people had been brought up in a heathen land, had gone there as children, they were coming out as grown people. And the only language they spoke was the language of their captors. That was Aramaic. But the Bible was written in Hebrew. So they read the Hebrew, then they translated it so that they could understand the meaning. Well now today, we've got our English Bible. And still the authorised version will hold its own against any. In spite of the fact that you and I can put your finger on some passages that might have been translated differently. But then we want to remember, don't we, sometimes, without parading this sort of thing as I know all about it. That the original was not written in English. It was written in the Greek tongue or the Hebrew, as it was Old or New Testament. So occasionally, we may have to resort to the uh, need to say, well, look, friends, I, I don't want to pretend that I can translate it better than they do, but the word there is so-and-so. And one of the most important principles for interpreting the scripture is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 13. And I very much want to impress this, not only on the congregation that are sitting here in the chapel, but you, dear friends, who are at the very ends of the earth, for next to the principle of right division, or perhaps parallel with it, this one is of importance. I have said before that if I lived another 50 years, now don't get frightened, friends, if I lived another 50 years, I'd bang away at this one, as I have for 50 years emphasised right division. 1 Corinthians 2, 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Now you got that. The book we are dealing with contains the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Comparing spiritual with spiritual. Now one of the Sad things is to read a pamphlet. And there is one person I have in mind who is very much addicted to this. He will give you just the one word and a meaning and build all his teaching upon that one translation. Whereas the word occurs ten times and it's up to every one of us who are teaching others to honour the fact that the Holy Ghost has used that word ten times. And before we build a doctrine we assemble the ten references and we get some common denominator that will include their distinctive meaning. Then we're on sound basis. But the other, you can, by omitting certain factors and features, almost teach anything. So the words which we're dealing are holy words. The psalm says, the, the scriptures are words of earth purified like a furnace of silver seven times. Seven times, of course, is perfection. God uses words of earth. 
Hebrew language, Greek language, English language are words of earth. They don't speak them up in glory. But they've been purified seven times by the process of inspiration so that we can trust them utterly. Just one reference to the way in which we may help a person with regard to studying the scriptures is a case in point in the Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles and um, verse 30. There's this man, oh, uh, the 8th chapter, I'm sorry, the 8th chapter and verse 30. There's this man of Ethiopia he's travelling up to Jerusalem and uh, the Spirit of God said to Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. For well, now he's got the basis. There was one man I knew, he could do it. I could never do it to save me life and I'm not quite sure whether he was right. But he did. He'd wait till the train started and then he'd look right down the compartment, you know, in the tube. Some are reading the Daily News, some are reading the Daily Telegraph, some are reading the Times, some are reading I don't know what. And he'd say in a very loud voice, not a single person reading anything that the Holy Spirit could use. And all look up here, it's all this. But you see, this man, this man was reading something that the Spirit of God could use. So he said to Philip, you go and join him. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. All right, now we go on. And he said unto him, understand this, Thou, what thou readest, he didn't say to him, do you believe it? Because he had more sense. You cannot possibly believe a thing you don't understand. I don't mean to say you'll understand it in its full sense, but you don't understand anything completely just now, with all the miracles that are going on in chemistry and science. You can believe it without understanding the process. But if you don't know what it means, well, it's simply superstition. So he said to him, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And now the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb, dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. And he went on reading. And he said, who is he speaking about? Does he speak about himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And then he believed. Well, that's an example, isn't it? Well, now, I could go on and you could feel this tremendous lot could be said. This is the very heart of our witness, the opened book. But um, I've got just here two pieces that I want to read. The first one is a poem. I dare say you know Kipling's If. And if anyone thinks they can live up to that, they'll be a man, my son, won't they? Well, this was written on the same lines as Kipling's If from a Christian point of view. Some of you may know it, but I think it may be worth, worth reading as a sort of finishing up some of the thoughts that we've had in the Amaya and crystallising them in this, this one way. So will you tolerate this for a moment? If, with apologies to Rudyard Kipling, if you can keep the faith 
when those about you are losing it and seeking something new, if you can stand the further though they flout you as being simple and old-fashioned too, if you can put your hand in Christ's and feeling the marks of Calvary's scars upon your palm, can gladly say Amen to all his dealing or change the sigh into a joyous psalm. If you can laugh when human hopes are banished, when castles fall and cherished prospects die, and just keep on, though earthly props have vanished, content to see the pattern by and by. If you can meet abuse without complaining, and greet your unkind critic with a smile, if conscious that your human love is waning, you claim a Calvary love that knows no guile. If you can bear the unjust imputation without a murmur or revengeful thought, or even forfeit rights of reputation because his glory is the one thing sought, if you can give an honest commendation to him whose work looms larger than your own, or scorn to speak the word of condemnation to him who falls or reaps what he has sown. If you can give consent to Calvary's dying and live again in resurrection power, if you can claim the victory not by trying, but resting in his triumph every hour, if you can be content with his provision, though others seem to prosper and succeed, nor let repining mar the heavenly vision, and simply trust in God for every need, if you can let the mind of Christ possess you, to think on things of good report and true, and ever let the love of Christ obsess you, constraining everything you say and do. If you can find in him your highest treasure, let him hold sway or heart and soul and limb. Then life is yours, and blessing without measure. And what is more, you'll live and reign with him. There's some things there, aren't there, that seem to gather up a little bit of the stand and the pressure and the triumph that we associate with a man like Nehemiah and the book we've been reading. Well, another little piece here. Still got time. I've typed this out on purpose. This study of Nehemiah reveals the age-old antipathy of the evil one to the building up of the body of Christ. The names of the adversaries may change as often as the attacks are renewed, but these attacks will still come from the Sandalots and the Tobias, and not from the outside world. We can hardly hope to escape if the Apostle Paul himself had to say to the Ephesians, Of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. The opposition will change its tactics, at one time mockery, at another flattery, but the purpose will be the same to cause the work to cease. In the past, the Berean Forward Movement and its predecessor, the Berean Expositor, had been ridiculed. The smallness of the meetings, the limited circulation, the social background of the founder have been made grounds of criticism. Heresy has been charged 
and the usurpation of the rights of a properly ordained ministry have been ventilated. Should ever the pressure of circumstances make it appear impossible for the Berean Expositor and its allied Berean Forward Movement to continue without compromising the truth entrusted to us, it is my earnest wish that the colours be nailed to the mast and the good ship honourably allowed to sink rather than give place to either the threats or the inducements of any modern sand ballot. To all who value the truth rightly divided with its glorious consequences, we commend this book of Nehemiah. May we ever emulate the courage, the fixedness of purpose, the refusal to compromise, the simplicity and the tenacity of the faith of this man of God, ever keeping before us the central feature of this book and the focal point of the Brian Forward movement, namely the pulpit of the opened book. Now I hope that doesn't sound like bombast. I've purposely typed it at the end of this series of Nehemiah. I purposely read it so that it shall be on record and on tape and I'm going to give it to our brother Mr. Canning to put it in one of his files to keep because I've made that a very definite statement as to the attitude that we should keep well in mind. And that's one of the reasons why I commend a study more than once, over and over again at intervals, of such a book as the book of Nehemiah, so that we may be prepared both for the attacks and the blandishments and treat them both in the same way. So may the Lord grant that those who listen those who stand for the truth, those who are any share in it here and elsewhere, may gather courage from the example given in this wonderful book, a small portion of that equally wonderful book which our Saviour deigned in his mercy to open at the beginning of his ministry, to live to fulfil throughout his ministry, and at the long last to open before he left this sphere for the right hand of the Majesty on high.